Life Audio. Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I am your host, Perseus Poku. We thank you for joining us uh, for our series as we go through uh, the Gospel of John. We're doing a survey of the Gospel of John. And after a word from our sponsors, we'll get started on the topic today. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. The previous ex, um, episode, we dealt with the role of worship and race, religion, um, as it relates to John's gospel and uh, his interaction. When I talk about his interaction, we're talking about his display of Christ um, as it relates to his dealing with the Samaritan woman. And from that discourse, we were able to unpack some principles that benefits us today as it relates to locality of worship. Uh, Do we only have to worship at a specific place? Do we only need to go to Jerusalem uh, like uh, many other religions do where they have a set place where true worship can only take place? Jesus answered that. Uh, There come a time where uh, anybody can worship him. doesn't matter where you are. If you are in Japan, you can worship Christ. If you are in uh, in, in, in China, you could worship Christ. Uh, if you're in Gambia, you can worship Christ. So it doesn't matter as a Christian where you are. You can worship Christ wherever you find yourself. And we, we are grateful for that. And then uh, we, we addressed the issue of who can worship Christ. doesn't matter the gender. If you're male or female, you can worship Christ. And we find Jesus breaking the customary laws. Uh, These are laws that man made, uh, which circumvented and hindered women um, from knowing God intimately for themselves. Uh, Jesus sent the apostles away to go get some food. And um, before they came back, he has finished his theological discourse with this woman. And by the time they arrived, uh, she had become a believer. So doesn't matter if you're black or white, doesn't matter if you're male or female, we all have Jesus 
uh, and you can accept him. You can worship him in spirit and in truth. Then we move on to chapter five. Today's episode, we're dealing with mercy in action. Chapter five begins with a detailed report about the surroundings. John um, went out of his way to tell us about the the environment, what's going on, um, what time um, in terms of the events, what time this occurred. He went out of his way to detail that to us. He gives us, the readers, details about Jewish festivals and uh, first century architecture. We learned that there was a Jewish holy day, verse 1. And Jesus, because of this holy day, went up to Jerusalem. We learned that there's a, a pool by the sheep gate. And the pool has five covered porches and it's called Bethesda, which, by the way, means the house of mercy, the house of mercy. So in terms of the pool of Bethesda, it was viewed as a place of healing. Uh, There isn't much information on the efficacy or the power of the pool, nor the origin of the story. Uh, It's noteworthy, as you read in chapter 5, that John writes that the individual sitting by the pool who, uh, uh, who gave or who believed that if he were to get into that pool, he'll become healed because angels or an angel had touched the pool in a certain way to administer miraculous healing to those who went in that pool after the, the angels uh, administered whatever they administered. Now, just because John talks about this belief doesn't mean that this is uh, totally factual in the sense that some people hold on to certain beliefs that they believe is true or real. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is. So John is documenting what some people believe during that first century uh, that this uh, pool held some sort of healing qualities or uh, uh, properties, healing properties. It's just like today. A lot of people go and um, bathe in um, some of the pools in Jerusalem, some of the pools in the Bible lands, and they believe that it it, it holds some sort of miraculous qualities. And that's to, to be debated, but they believe it. So just because John documents that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true that individuals who went into this pool were automatically healed. John, again, he is documenting what some people believed in the first century. So the main point of the aforementioned prologue is verse 9. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, it challenged the common traditional view of the region's incumbents. And what I mean by that is when Jesus performed the miracle on the Sabbath, it violated the, uh, the order or the ordinances set forth for the Sabbath by the religious establishment. The religious establishment had uh, already, at that point, they had stripped 
the core principles of the Sabbath. This is why Jesus, when he came on the scene, he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the principles of the Sabbath are still there. He also said, I came to not to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So the principles that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had embedded into the doctrine of the Sabbath had been violated, had been misconstrued, has been uh, uh, used in a way uh, almost to weaponize against everyday people. The religious establishment wanted to lord over others. They wanted others to see them as more holy than they were. They wanted others uh, to, um, in, in a sense, serve them rather than God. So what they did with many of the Mosaic law is they redefined what the Sabbath was. They redefined what divorce was. They, they, they made up these peripheral doctrines to put them at advantage over everyday people. So when Jesus came on the scene, that's why they had an issue with Jesus because Jesus was giving them the original principles uh, from the Mosaic law. This is what the, the, uh, uh, the Mosaic law means. And when Jesus came, he said, I came to uh, fulfill the will of the Father. And the will of the Father, in many cases, went against some of the uh, human religious laws that were created by the religious establishment. And even today, you find yourself looking at television and you may see a certain minister and they are coming up with these interesting interpretation of God's word and it's really uh, heretical. But yet they're supposed to be uh, a, a leader of God's word. They're supposed to be uh, a prophet. They're supposed to be an apostle. They're supposed to be uh, this individual of knowledge. They have the, t- the title. They have the influence. But their hermeneutics is off. They, they, the, the, the way they interpret the passage is designed intentionally to put them at advantage so they can get more money, so they can get more fame, so they can get more notoriety, so they can get more influence, so they can get more followers, and we have to be careful. So when John uh, talks about Jesus teaching on the Sabbath or Jesus performing a miracle on the Sabbath, Jesus knows because he's got the son, that he can do whatever he wants to do. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Let us take a break to recognize our sponsors, and we'll be right back. That's Jesus. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's not uh, subservient to the Sabbath. He is Lord over the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. So if he wants to work on the Sabbath, He's saying it's okay to work on the Sabbath. He's saying it's okay to, to, to live holy on the Sabbath. He's saying it's okay to minister on the Sabbath. But yet, uh, the, the religious leaders have created these laws where no work could be done, not even uh, a holy work. 
And Jesus is saying, you've gone too far when you're saying that you can't even minister on the Sabbath. You can't even uh, uh, help others on the Sabbath. You can't even uh, uh, lift, do things that requires action on the Sabbath. And he challenged them. I'm paraphrasing. If you guys remember this, this uh, uh, scenario, Jesus challenged the people of that time. And he said, if one of you all lost an animal, an animal fell into a pit, how many of you all would not go into that pit and, and, and help that animal out on the Sabbath? And he put them into a corner because some of them knew that they had done that on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any work, but yet when it's convenient for you, you are working. So Jesus was challenging them. The way that they had misinterpreted uh, the Sabbath, the way they, they had redefined the Sabbath was created in a, in, a, in a way that even they couldn't follow all of the rules that they had created. But the objective is, what is God's view of his laws. What is God's views of his doctrines? What is God's view of his instructions? And what is God's views on his principles? So it's important that we study God's word. Now, how should Christians today treat the Sabbath? Some groups uh, believe that true worship can only occur on a certain day. So as a result, they insist uh, as an example, let's say Saturday is the only true day of worship. They fail to realize that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Christ himself declared that the Sabbath was made for man, as I said before, not, not man for the Sabbath. The proper view of the Sabbath for all Christians is this. Christ has performed all the work and he now invites you to rest in him. We are no longer bound by any specific day as it pertains to holiness. Every day should be holy for Christians. There's no need for any further works in terms of justification. And if you want a scripture to uh, read, look at Hebrews chapter 4. The entirety of Hebrews chapter 4 is to demonstrate this principle that God is not restricting us to one day. He's restricting us, uh, uh, he's encouraging us, rather, to live holy every day. Just like you treat the Sabbath as holy, he's saying every day is holy. And whatever uh, was found in the Sabbatarian view you know, of the Old Testament is fully established and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's liberated us. He's liberated us to live holy Every single day, not just on one day. And yes, we should, uh, the principle of resting is biblical. We should have a day where we uh, rest from working. That's, that, that, that's part of how God created us. Uh, now, whether that day is on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it doesn't matter. God has, has relieved us. God has liberated us to worship every day, to walk holy every day, but yet not working to the point where we don't have a day of rest. The proper view of the Sabbath. So there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will Failed by following the example 
of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Let me read that again. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The Hebrew writer is unpacking the uh, context of the Sabbath for Christians. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. So in other words, you can't work for your salvation. We work because we are saved. We do not work to get saved. Let me say it again. Because we're saved is why we work, but we don't work to get saved. The work has already been performed on the cross. Christ has already died and he's already risen. The atonement is efficacious, is powerful, is complete. So when we accept Christ, we're turning over um, our propensity to try to reach God on our own, and we put everything in the work of Jesus. The work has already been done. So let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Rest in Christ. Rest in him. Believe in what he said. Have faith in him. When Christ said that no one can pluck you out of my hands, he means that. He means that. You can't unsave yourself. And when God saves you, it's not a loose salvation. It's complete. Sometimes uh, we feel like this. Sometimes we feel like that. But that, 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 that doesn't mean that you're not saved anymore. Sometimes we make uh, uh, mistakes. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're not saved anymore. When God has you, he has you for eternity. That's what the scripture, uh, scripture teaches us. Scripture does not teach us anywhere that you can unsave yourself. Once God has you, he has you. And even though we go through ups and downs, even though we have challenges, even Peter. Peter uh, cursed, uh, uh, cursed and said he didn't know Jesus, but God still used him. There are numerous examples of where saints have fallen, but that doesn't mean that they were no longer in the family. Now, I will say this. Uh, the Bible is clear. There, there are some people who verbalize or allege that they know God, but God knows their heart, and God will say, depart from you. I never knew you to begin with. So let's not confuse those individuals with authentic Christians, and God knows us, each, each one personally. So he knows who is uh, genuine in their faith and who is just uh, confessing him with their mouth and not their heart. So we're talking about the God of mercy. And mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We, we deserve eternal damnation. We deserve um, to be uh, punished to the infinite amount. We, uh, we, we deserve death. We deserve these things, but God is so merciful that he already had made a way for us by sending Christ and having him die on the cross for our salvation. And so even before we were born, God had already put things in order uh, to make it accessible for us to have a relationship with him. So we deserve those things that I just mentioned, but God is merciful. He withheld the punishment that we deserve. And that's what mercy is. Mercy is not given to us what we deserve. 
And so we thank God for that. And this uh, narrative in chapter five is powerful. It's powerful. Chapter five, the narrative dealing with uh, the man who was sitting by the pool is powerful. So when I was in seminary, um, we had to do a project uh, and I chose to do John chapter five, where I created a structural diagram of John chapter five, verses one through 15. And so um, I'm going to do my best to try to convey this um, while you're listening to me. But I also think to have the visual is very important. So if you would like a visual of this handout, please email us at info at srministries.org, info at srministries.org. You can go on our website and also get the um, contact information. But this is a structured diagram of John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. It starts with the introduction, John 5 and 1, which is the reason for the visit. And it says, Jesus enters Jerusalem for a Jewish feast, verse 1. Then the second category is a house of mercy. Uh, John 5, verses 2 through 4, and that deals with the role of tradition. So take, just listen to a house of mercy, John chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, the role of tradition. It says, there's the sheep gate of Bethesda, which is called the house of mercy, verse 2. Then there was the impotent uh, people waiting for healing at the pool, verse 3. Then a report of supposed healing by an angel of the Lord, verse 4. So that's the second section of John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Introduction, John 5 and 1, a house of mercy. John chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, uh, the role of tradition. Then there's a third category, the man who needs mercy. John chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, and that deals with the role of the Messiah. The man who needs mercy, John chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, and the role of the Messiah. So this is the third section, verses 5 through 9. There's a man with a a 38-year affliction. It didn't say the man was 38 years old. It says he had been there 38 years. Sometimes I hear ministers uh, using this text, and they mistakenly say the man was 38 years old. No, he was not. 38 years old. He had been there 38 years. Now, the second part of the role of the Messiah, the man who needs mercy, John chapter 5, verses 5 through 9 is, the man explains his challenge or his challenges, verse 7. Then Jesus gives the man a directive, verse 8. The man follows the directive and is healed by Jesus, verse 9. And I love this because in many of the Gospels, you'll see Jesus healing someone, but yet he also tells them to do their part. Um, He'll make a spittle, put it on someone's eye and say, uh, go wash it. And it's up to you to do your part. And so Jesus, uh, he can do everything for you, but a lot of times he wants you to do your part. So it's the same thing with us. Uh, We may go to church. uh, We may read the Bible. Uh, We may even pray, but ultimately, 
you have to take the principles, the instructions, the commandments that you learn from your Sunday school, you learn from your Bible studies, you learn from your sermons, you learn from your small accountability groups, and you have to apply it into your life. You have to apply it. You have to put it into action. It's not enough just to believe. The Bible said even the devil believes. We as Christians, we got to take what we believe and put it into action. Then the next category is those without mercy. Chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, the role of the law. The role of the law. Jesus heals, and the reaction from the religious leaders is not positive. You would think they'll be happy that this man that they've been walking by all these years has finally been healed. But no, they're not happy. So that's the next section. Those without mercy deals with the religious leaders. John 5, 10 through 12, the role of the law. All they're thinking about is their interpretation of the law. The Jews questioned the healed man about breaking the Sabbath, verse 10. The healed man pointed the finger at the one who healed him, verse 11. The Jews wanted to know the identity of the healer, verse 12. And that's the role of the law. Then the last category is mercy exemplified. So those without mercy, verses 10 through 12, are the religious leaders. They're not even happy that this man has been healed. They just want to complain. But here is mercy in action. Jesus the Christ, verses 13 through 15, who exhibits the role of grace. He has, he, he has mercy on this man. The identity of the healer was not known to the healed man, verse 13. Jesus makes himself known to the man with an admonishment, verse 14. The man identified Jesus as the healer, verse 15. John, it just filled with so many great um, perspective about Christ. I hope you were blessed by this episode. And we'll continue this survey of John in our, uh, as part of our series. Please consider giving. And may the Lord bless you. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. And as always, we would like to thank our friends at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this broadcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows. Scripture and brain science agree. Meditating on God's Word transforms us and reduces stress in our lives. I'm Jody Nisnik, host of So Much More, Creating Space for God a scripture meditation podcast. And each week I give you space to hear God's word, listen to the spirit and pray about what's on your heart. And then we have a thoughtful conversation with guests to help us go deeper. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.